everyone welcome to antibodies this is our 34th body sode a segment where we discuss research papers with the first or last authors of the article joining me today is my co-host eugenio from autonomous university of mexico how are you doing eugenio i'm doing pretty pretty well i'm very excited for today's discussion yeah it's been two months since we started discussing since we since we last recorded an episode mostly i've been busy with the graduation stuff just the side things in my life <laughs> getting a phd then <laughs> so yeah i'm also very excited because today i think it's the first episode we'll ever have where we'll discuss immunology in context of pregnancy and the article we're discussing today is titled interleukin 22 plays a dual role in the amniotic cavity tissue injury and host defense against microbes in the preterm labor the last author of this article Dr. Nardi Gomez-Lopez is joining us today. Welcome to the podcast, Nardi. Thank you so much for having me, Jatin and Eugenia. Uh, Eugenia, would you like to tell us something about our guest today? Of course. And today I'm very happy to present Dr. Nardi Gomez-Lopez, who is an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Wayne State University School of Medicine. Dr. Gomez Lopez obtained her master's and doctoral degrees at the National School of Biological Science and National Institute of Perinatology in Mexico City. Next, she completed two postdoctoral fellowships at the University of Alberta and the Robinson Institute at the University of Adelaide. She's now the leader of the Maternal Fetal Immunobiology Unit, and her main focus and area of research is pregnancy, preterm labor, birth, and the host microbe interactions in pregnancy. So Dr. Gomez, before we start, I know we have a lot of Latino listeners. Can you give a message to all the graduate and undergraduate audience out there who are doing science in Latin America and particularly women who are looking forward to continue in the scientific research? Yes. Well, um, what I will say to those uh, researchers working in Latin America is um, ob there are obvious differences between our countries and, um, for example, United States of other Western countries. Um, the resources may not be the same, um, but I think that one uh, huge opportunity that we have in our countries is that we have uh, the incidence of certain diseases is um, higher. And therefore the sample availability, it's, um, it's better. So. I did my PhD in the National in the National Institute of Perinatology, and there I was able to collect multiple samples that, looking back, I was I will not be able to collect in other countries. So I think that yes, considering all the uh, lack of resources and support that th there are characteristics of our countries, I think that we should look into the positive, which is collecting samples, studying problems that are really significant for society. And may, specifically for women, I would say, I think follow your dreams. Uh, whatever you want to do, um, uh, it's possible to do it. Nowadays, it's actually easier 
for, for women than in the past. But I think it's very important to also be collaborative and to talk to multiple institutes um, in, in Mexico City. I'm not sure how it's in other Latin American countries, but we have different institutes. And one of the things that I did to, during my PhD studies was to collaborate with different institutes and to gain um, resources from different institutes in order to to, to do my research. So I also think that the, in Latin America, we are very collaborative. So I think this is something that is very, um, very nice in our countries. So I, I think that the, there are opportunities anywhere, as long as you can be collaborative and to, to have a, 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 a goal in mind, then I think um, you will be successful. And after, obviously, it's very important to travel and to, um, look into other opportunities outside of your country in order to improve your English, your way to communicate. Um, and so that also will help you to, to, to go outside of your comfort zone, uh, you know, speaking your own language and so on. So I, I, I just, I think that they, we, we have an amazing opportunity and for specifically for my laboratory, I always welcome uh, people from Latin America and, um, because I, I, I can understand their journey a little bit easier, I think. Thank you. Thank you for this great message. And before we start the discussion, uh, Doctor, what got you interested in studying pregnancy in immunology? I, since er, very early in my uh, undergrad uh, education, I was very interested in uh, immunology because I was a kid with many allergies and, uh, you know, always the kid that was in, in the in the back of the, <laughs> the, the classroom um, having allergies and so on. So I was that kid. And so I was always interested in learning what happens to my body, why my body is har harming me. Um, and as I um, went through uh, the my different courses, I realized that the immune system was very important. And in some circumstances, your immune system was attacking your own body. And I got very interested into that. The reason why I'm focusing on pregnancy, it's very random. Um, I'm very passionate about immunology. And at that time, when I was focusing on uh, finding a place to do my research in Mexico City, I found that there was this institute that were focusing on understanding perinatology. And so perinatology is involving pregnant women and babies and so on. And they have the resources that I didn't have um, in my school. So by looking for resources, I became interested in pregnancy. And then I learned the complexity of pregnancy. Uh, usually in medicine, you have one patient. In pregnancy, you have two, the mom and the baby. Um, and that got me very interested in, in knowing more and more about uh, the immunology of pregnancy. And this is what it led me to, to who I am right now. Mm. Well, thank you. That's a really great uh, message. So, Jatin, I think we could start the discussion with the terminology. Oh, yes. So this is also my first paper <laughs> reading about pregnancy and immunology. So a lot of these terminology might even be for me but I will pretend that I already know all of these. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with our first term. Um, can you tell us uh, about gestation? What is labor and preterm labor? Yes, gestation is um, the period when, um, in this case, a human is pregnant. Um, so that is what we call gestation. Uh, gestation is pregnancy. Um, labor. Labor is the time in which um, 
the woman enters into an active process that leads to the delivery of the baby. The process of, lab of labor itself is a very complicated process that mainly involves three different events, myometric contractility, cervical dilation, and rupture of membranes. This will be important because when the process, the process of labor is a very well orchestrated event. When these processes, either in the myometrium, in the cervix, or in the membranes that involve the intra, intramuric cavity and are dysregulated, there are disease can occur. So um, preterm labor, um, it's a very complex syndrome. Um, but in, in, in brief, I can tell you that is the premature activation of the normal process of labor. So labor usually occurs after 37 weeks of gestation, which will lead, lead to a normal term delivery or a normal baby being born at 37, 40 weeks, hopefully. Um, in preterm uh, gestation, the preterm labor process occurs before 37 weeks. And of course, as early as it occurs is, is worse because it will lead to a, a baby that is born more prematurely um, and therefore they will have more um, adverse consequences. Okay. And pre, what would be preterm birth? Preterm birth is um, delivery, is defined as delivery before 37 weeks of gestation. Okay. So... I have read that preterm birth often precedes, I mean, preterm labor often precedes preterm birth, but is it possible that there is preterm labor, but it does not result in a preterm birth? Yes. Actually, the, the, the reason why a baby is born prematurely is, all, prematurely is because it's always associated with disease. So babies are born preterm, because there are two main reasons. One is because the, the physician decides this is, there is some type of complication for the mother or the fetus or both, and therefore we need to terminate the pregnancy. An example of that is preeclampsia. It's a disease that the only cure that we have at this point is to take out the placenta because the placenta is causing the disease. So therefore we have to terminate the pregnancy. Um, that in, 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 in late pregnancy wouldn't be termination, it would be the completion of pregnancy. So, but we had a lot of um, neonatal and pediatric uh, support, so most of these babies do fine. Um, in, the, in the other side, there is a process that is called spontaneous preterm labor. So by reasons that we cannot understand, and that's actually one of the focus of our, 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 our lab, is to investigate how the process of labor is starting, why. Um, there are some women who present with a spontaneous preterm labor. And in many cases, actually 70% of those cases, those women will deliver, will uh, end delivering a premature baby. And But in some other cases, maybe the process of preterm labor is not enough in order to go all the way to the delivery of the baby. So these women can just are just managed in, in, the, in the hospital um, and then they are returned to their house. So not all cases of preterm labor will lead, deal with a preterm delivery. Okay, thanks a lot for that. The next part, we are going a little towards the fetal maternal interface. And I would like you to define this term decidua and these two parts, decidua parietalis peri peri and decidua basalis. Yes. So 
because we are focusing on understanding um, pregnancy and how pregnancy complications occur, we um, I first would like to, to explain a little bit about the structures that we are interested in. So the uterine cavity includes, when there is a pregnancy, it includes an, uh, the intrauterine space. Um, I, had you heard something like, oh, my water broke, you know? So that means that the, the amniotic fluid it's leaking out of the um, leaking out of the pregnancy. So that intramniotic cavity includes the fetus that is swimming in amniotic fluid, and the amniotic fluid is surrounded by the placental tissues, the placenta itself, and the extraplacental membranes. So what is inside on the the intrauterine cavity is the placenta, the extraplacental membranes, and the baby that is swimming into the amniotic cavity. Um, what when we, because we are investigating the maternal fetal interaction, the maternal fetal unit, we are focusing on finding differences in the decision. The decision is the interface between the mother and the fetus. The mother, uh, it's it is the uterine cavity. The uterus has different layers: the my, the perimetrium, the myometrium, and the endometrium. And during pregnancy, the uterus gets decidualized. And then cells from the endometrium become deciduous cells. So all that cavity that is surrounding the intrauterine cavity is decidualized, and therefore the decidua is the main contact, the maternal contact with the fetal tissues. The decidua basalis is the one that is close to the placenta, and the decidua parietalis is the one that is close to the membranes. So when we focus on maternal-fetal interactions, we, are, we want to focus on the areas in which the mother meets the fetus, in this case, the decidua. However, there is another interface that is the maternal-fetal um, interaction is the intervillous space. And the placenta, as you imagine, is like cake and it has a fingers-like projections inside of the, 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 the cake. And all these fingers-like projections are filled with maternal blood and the fetal cells are between those. So that is called intervillous space. And that is very, very important for other diseases. But because we don't want to, in, in our studies, we want to focus mainly in the maternal side. We always focus on the decision, which is, the uterine cavity and the deciduous cells that they are lay laying on the placental tissues. Thanks a lot, Narati, for this. I will probably never forget about these <laughs> organs <laughs> anymore. Okay, so I think with that, we are done with the terminology and we can dive into the into this paper. So let's look at what's the whole story about. Well, preterm birth is a significant global problem that affects about 15 million babies every year throughout the world. And the prevalence in the United States is 10%, which means one out of every 10 babies is preterm. Uh, clearly, understanding the factors that lead to preterm birth will help us reduce this number or even predict when preterm births are more likely. Let's look at what the evidence is there, what evidence is already there. Now, preterm labor typically precedes preterm birth, as we discussed. Now, inflammation in the amniotic sac has been linked to preterm labor. This inflammation can be due to microbial products, which is PAMPs, as we call it, or just sterile inflammation due to danger signals or damps that come out of dead or stressed cells. 
It is believed that this inflammatory response from the PAMPs or DAMPs leads to the unexpected effect of preterm labor. When we think of DAMPs and PAMPs, we instinctively think of innate immune cells, and that's where most fetal maternal immunological investigations have been limited to. Well, looking at the innate immune cells, at the interface or at the decidua. As a quick sidestep, I would like to plug in one of our previous episodes. If you guys are interested in learning about the innate immune system and how it does, what it does, what are the components of the innate immune system, we have created a multi-episode series on the topic in our Immunology 101 segment. So do check it out. Now, coming back to our discussion, today we're going to be not focusing on innate cells as much. We will be talking about the adaptive immune cells. The authors of this article in their previous publications have shown that activation of T-cells in the decidual tissues, also known as uh, decidual T-cells, is associated with the normal physiological process of labor. And if these maternal effector T-cells are activated prematurely, that can trigger acute inflammation leading to preterm labor and birth. What it means is it's the effector T-cells and their activation that can hold the key to a normal versus a preterm labor. If we go to the molecular side, we're going to be talking about this cytokine called interleukin-22. IL-22 has a dominant role in maintaining intestinal health, metabolism, and protection from microbes. However, there's very little known about the cytokines in the context of pregnancy. The limited publications that exist, they point in both directions regarding its role at the fetal maternal interface. There are studies that show IL-22 helping in the survival of human trophoblasts, prevention of allogeneic graft rejection, and it also prevents LPS-induced preterm labor in mice. On the other side, there's also evidence that IL-22-producing T-cells are prevalent in cases of unexplained recurrent abortions. So clearly, the role of IL-22 in pregnancy is still disputable. The authors of this paper are interested in understanding at a deeper level what and how exactly is IL-22 functioning in terms of preterm labor and birth. Nardi, before we begin talking about the results, I have two questions. First, how would microbes typically make their way to the fetal maternal interface? Yes, so we actually have done other studies showing that microbes um, in, can invade the amniotic cavity or the intramniotic space by ascending from the vagina into the cervix and then it goes to the amniotic cavity, intrauterine space and then amniotic cavity. Um, why does that happen? We don't know. Some women may have, um, and we actually are investigating that in collaboration with our microbiologists here at the perinatology research branch. Um, but in, in, it is believed that in some circumstances, there is good bacteria in the vaginal um, microbiota or vaginal flora, you may, you may also know it like, like that. So there are microorganisms that are present in the vagina, and those microorganisms are kind of like sustaining their balance to each other. But when there is some type of disruption there, the bad guys can enter, get, gain access into that in a cervical canal, and then in the cervix, 
then they can get all the way into the intramuric space. Um, why that happens in some women and, and not in others is something that we are currently investigating. This sounds very similar to how a lot of uh, intestinal inflammatory diseases mm -hmm. begin. The mm -hmm. replacement of the existing flora with the with a bad flora. Okay, and th th that leads me to the second question. Uh, we talked about microbial infection. We also talked about sterile inflammation uh, before. So what would be an example of an event that would lead to the cellular damage and sterile inflammation at the fetal maternal interface? Yeah, every time that I give a lecture and focus on sterile inflammation, I give the example of gout. Gout is an inflammatory process in which you have your own body releasing a urid crystals, so endogenous signals that will lead to inflammation. So sterile inflammation is triggered by molecules that were inside of a cell. So you think about an immune system, the, the, the cells have endogenous uh, molecules. When they are inside of the cell, our immune system cannot recognize them and is not therefore prepared to see these, these uh, molecules. But for there are some cells that they, they are necrotic or they have some type of senescence or cellular damage. So then these molecules that were inside of the cell, we call it endogenous molecules, now they are releasing to the extracellular space. And because our immune system is there to protect us, then it will respond towards these endogenous signals. In our case, uh, we believe that the placenta is responsible for the release of these endogenous signals or the placental cells. And because of the, our immune system is not prepared to deal with them, then it causes inflammation. And inflammation will lead to um, preterm delivery and so on. It sounds like when you said that the preterm uh, labor, just a process of labor that involves breaking down of membranes, mm -hmm. right? So in a way, there would be some cues naturally produced that have to uh, get rid of some of these membranes, right? Yes. So the, the rupture of membranes is part of the process of preterm labor. And actually there is a condition that is called preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes that is called PPROM. And in those circumstances, besides besides damage, besides danger signal, uh, think about the possibility that this is a very closed system and with the membranes rupture, then the microorganisms can get easily access into that intramuric space. So those cases are actually have to deal with inflammation uh, um, involving alarmings or danger signals, but more importantly, are dealing with microbes invading the amniotic cavity, which is a bigger problem. So then they have double work to do. Uh, our immune system there is, is actually extremely activated. Okay. Yeah. This looks like this process in, is is designed in a way that it's a lot of things can go wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, so with that, I think we can dive into the first uh, experiment in this paper. The authors collected human placental samples within thirty minutes of delivery, and they phenotyped the immune cells in the decidua. Uh, also, before I begin with there, Nardi, you said that the deciduization happens when during the gestation, right? Mm -hmm. So that means immune cells from all over the body will inhabit that because it did not exist before. Yes, yes. Actually, that is something that is pretty, I think, pretty cool because when you don't have a pregnancy, you don't have that decidualization. So when you have implantation and decidualization, 
then you have a decentralization of course to maintain pregnancy. So those cells become specialized to maintain their the, the intramuric um, cavity. Um, and then that facilitates the migration of multiple cell types. And that is something actually that we are recently um, very interested in deciphering. How are the cellular dynamics between early pregnancy and late pregnancy? And actually um, single cell genomics has been utilized in order to map all these different cell types. So cell, cells that they are infiltrating the maternal fetal interface. And we, we don't work with early pregnancies, but we work mainly with late pregnancies. Um, but there are other people are, um, in UK and other, other countries um, investing where, where, where samples from terminations are available um, can um, map this immune, immuno, immunology. Actually, we call it the, the immunology of the maternal fetal interface. Okay. So yeah, coming back to our results, we have got these samples collected from human placental, the human placenta within 30 minutes of delivery. And we're trying to phenotype the immune cells in the decidua. The authors divided these samples into two groups, the preterm group where the samples are from women with preterm birth. And the second group is the term controls that is from women who had a normal birth time. So preterm labor and the term labor are the two groups that we are examining here. The authors found that IL-22 positive T-cells were more abundant in the preterm labor group. These T-cells co-expressed ROR gamma T, which is a typical cytokine associated with helper 17 cells. However, these cells did not express T helper 17, I mean IL-17 or interferon gamma, or any type uh, type 2 cytokines like IL-5 or IL-13. So yeah, this looks like a unique population that is not a type 17 uh, helper. Well, these T-cells also expressed high levels of CD69, which is uh, used as a proxy for activation of T-cells. So if you see a CD69 high uh, T-cell, you could assume that this has been activated recently. Then apart from the T cells, there were also IL-22 positive B cells, NK cells, and ILCs, innate lymphoid cells, but they did not differ significantly between the two groups that we are looking at. And the cherry on the cake is the authors were able to confirm these findings using a pub previously published single cell RNA-seq dataset from human placental tissues. Uh, Nardi, I'm interested in knowing your opinion about these ROR gamma T positive cells. Does it hint towards a particular niche that they occupy or a type of stimuli that activates them? Yeah, we think that, um, so actually we were very interested in characterizing these T cells because in our previous reports, we had shown that the decidua is enriched in effector activated T cells. So what we wanted to do is what are these interleukin-22 positive T cells doing? What are the features of this interleukin-22 positive? Because of the markers that they express and because we are able to find them in a, this specific subset of women with preterm labor, we believe that this is uh, there are T cells that they were residing in the decidua and somehow were activated or reactivated and they, they are associated with disease. So we, we think that it's a local process. Okay. So in short, the differential source of IL-22 in the preterm labor women was found to be primarily T-cells. Now in the next figure, 
that we have established this high prevalence of IL-22 positive activated T cells in the preterm birth women, let's do some experiments with mice to tease out the mechanisms. The authors have already shown in their previous work that in vivo activation of T cells by injecting uh, anti-CD3 intraperitoneally induces preterm birth and neonatal mortality in mice. So this is a model where they can study a preterm birth in mice. This time, they have a specific candidate to look, in, look into, which is interleukin-22, to see if interleukin-22 is released by activated T-cells in mice, they performed the T-cell activation experiment again. That is, they injected anti-CD3 intraperitoneally. And yes, it increased the amount of circulating IL-2 in these mice. The next obvious question is, does IL-22 itself cause preterm birth and neonatal mortality? To answer this, the authors injected IL-22 intraperitoneal and guess what? It did not shorten the gestation period. And the reason for this is, well, we'll come back to it, this mystery, a little later. An interesting thing that the authors noticed was when the maternal T-cells were activated, there was increase in IL-22 in the amniotic fluid. And the authors also found higher expression of IL-22 receptors on the fetal and gestational tissues, which means... First, that the fetus is ready to respond to IL-22 that is coming from the maternal side and maybe there is some way this IL-22 is reaching towards the other side of the of this interface, towards the fetus. Uh, Nardi, here's another question from me. When you deliver anti-CD3 for systemic T-cell activation, is the expectation that this anti-CD3 is reaching the placenta or around the maternal tissues and activating those decidual T-cells or that these anti-CD3 is activating some T-cell in the body at a distant location and they are traveling towards the placenta? Yeah. So the first, the two possibilities are, um, they can occur. But the first one um, actually is in the, in the original paper in which we describe um, the T-cell activation by anti-CD3 treatment will cause preterm birth, which actually the first author is also um, a Latina um, from Mexico City, Marcia Arenas Hernandez, who did the PhD uh, in my laboratory. So what she found is that actually when you inject anti-CD3, and, and then she evaluated different tissues, including the decidua, she found that the anti-CD3 is capable of inducing T-cell activation in the decidua. Now, how are these T cells in the decidua? It's something that uh, we have been studying for many years, and we have actually generated a model in which we propose that there are some T cells in the circulation of pregnant women at the end of gestation, and then somehow of reactivation occurs, these T cells then can migrate into the, intra, in, into the decidua, and there they can acquire specific subsets like TH22 and can cause disease. So uh, if, uh, if, I, if I answer to your question, yes, those anti-CD3 causes T-cell activation, but in our model, we are injecting anti-CD3. In what we are proposing that goes wrong in the pathology is that they somehow these T-cells that they are traveling in the blood migrate into the a maternal fetal interface, and then they acquire a pathological phenotype. Okay, thanks a lot for that answer. 
overall, what we have learned from this experiment is that when maternal T cells are activated, there is an increase in IL-22 expression on the maternal side and an increase in IL-22 receptor expression on the fetal side. The next step would be to check if there's any transcytosis of IL-22 from this maternal side to the fetal side because the authors could not find IL-22 expression by the fetus. To test this, the authors use an ex vivo human system that mimics this fetal maternal interface. Uh, Nadi, would you like to uh, just elaborate a bit what kind of uh, system is this where you can study the fetal maternal interface? Yes. So in order to investigate whether the maternal interleukin-22 was crossing into the amniotic, into the, the fetal cavity, meaning the amniotic cavity, um, we utilize extra placental membranes that I mentioned to you earlier, like it was the placenta and the extra placental membranes surrounding the, the, the amniotic cavity. So we collected membranes that by definition have the decidua, which is maternal, the chorion that is fetal, and the amnion that is fetal. The amnion is, fet is facing the fetus, the decidua is facing the mother. So we collected those membranes from women who deliver a term with, without any pathology, um, but without labor, so avoid inflammation, and avoid that the system is somehow disturbed. So we collected those membranes and set them up in a transwell system in which we put the maternal side facing up and the fetal side facing down. And then we will um, we label the, the interleukin-22, the cytokine, we place it in, 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 in the maternal side and see whether it can cross in the fetal side. And by measuring the, the level of fluorescence, so the label that we utilize to to label the interleukin-22, we were able to measure how much did we add, how much are we recovering from the fetal system. And this is what we report here as transferred interleukin-22. I'm very surprised that those tissues are still usable for experiments, like as yes. barriers. Yes, actually, this is something that we, um, speaking, a going back a little bit um, to your first, first question, this is something that we developed in Mexico City in the National Institute of Perinatology because we have access to those patients and normal pregnancies and uh, the incidence of preterm birth is lower than here in the United States. So we have more normal pregnancies. So one of the things that we did is to develop different models in which we can investigate the maternal fetal interface in vitro. You, you know, just something that you said that you said just now that Mexico City uh, has lower incidence of these preterm birth than United States. So mm -hmm. what that's telling me is there is an environmental factor into it. Do yes. we do we know any of these environmental factors? Well, there, there is um, environmental factors. There is also genetic factors that they are involved. Um, and not the entire United, the, the rate of preterm birth in the United States is 11%, 10%. One of every 10 babies is born premature. In Mexico City, last time I checked, it was five to 6%. Um, so, also, it is higher in certain states. For example, in Michigan, can reach up to 16% of preterm delivery. So in different states, it's um, lower. So in average, it's 11%. But my point is that there are also racial components, um, environmental components. Um, smoking has been associated with preterm delivery. Um, also, um, nutritional habits um, are also associated with preterm delivery, obesity is highly associated with um, preterm delivery. 
uh, stress and so on. So there are multiple factors. That's the reason why we call it a syndrome. Britain is a written label is a syndrome because there has so many etiologists. Okay, thanks a lot for that. Now, coming back to ourselves, when we were talking about this ex vivo human system to mimic the fetal maternal interface, the authors found that, that IL-22 was indeed capable of crossing from the maternal side to the choramnion, which is a membrane that surrounds the fetus. After establishing that the maternal IL-22 indeed crosses over, the next question is, how does this relate to preterm births? To study this, the authors divided their samples into four groups. So from the first group is from women with preterm births and no sterile uh, intraamniotic inflammation. So these were preterm births with no inflammation at all. And second group is women with preterm births with sterile intraamniotic inflammation. Third group is women with preterm births with micro, uh, microbial intraamniotic inflammation. Note that all these three groups of women were also positive for preterm labor. The fourth group is a control group. These are women with preterm labor, but they had normal term birth. By comparing all other groups with the control group here, we can ask the question, what makes the difference between a term and a preterm birth when all of these groups show the signs of preterm labor? So it was observed that women with microbial or sterile inflammation had increased IL-22 concentrations than the term controls and the group which did not have inflammation. Then the IL-22 was also higher in microbe-mediate inflammation group compared to the sterile inflammation. So if you want to imagine a bar graph in your head, the lowest inflammation, the lowest uh, IL-22 was found in the group which had which did not have any inflammation or the control. Then you can you go a little up with the IL-22 with in the group that had sterile inflammation, and then you have the highest amount of IL-22 in the group that had microbial inflammation. With this, looking at all this data, the authors suggest two roles for IL-22. First, it is likely capable of causing fetal injury that is leading to neonatal death. And the second, IL-22 is being expressed as a part of the antimicrobial host defense. So far, these data points to fact, uh, point towards the fact that mothers produce IL-22 in response to some stimuli, and T-cells are the main producers of this IL-22, and this cytokine is crossing over to the fetus then the IL-22 concentration increases in sterile inflammation and goes up even further during microbial infection. So Eugenio, would you like to take over from this point? Sure. And I think so far it has been a really fantastic uh, discussion of the paper. Uh, but the point here is what really the exposure of IL-22 causes to the fetus? In order to solve this, the authors did a very clever experiment. They did ultrasounded guided intramniotic injections of IL-22. And this is very important because in this way, IL-22 was administered only in the tissue close to the fetus and not in the periphery. They found out that IL-22 shortened gestational length and that mice exposed to the cytokine had increased mortality. The authors observed that those animals that eventually succumbed to death were hypoxic. So they asked, what was the IL-22 doing in the fetal tissue that led to death? 
the most obvious step would be looking in the lungs. The authors found a reduction of surfactant protein A, a factor that is related to the lung health. They also found increased production of cytokines and alarmins related to IL-22 signal. Moreover, they observe a reduction in inflammatory cytokines such as interferon gamma, TCLP, CCL5, IL-27, among others. So Nardi, I have a question here. Um, so in the previous results, when IL-22 was injected systemically, there was no preterm birth. But when, when you do it intramniotic, you see a phenotype here. So what do you think is accounting for this difference? Is it a dose-related effect where systemic injection dilutes the IL-22? Yes, we, we thought about the first the second poss possibility to be the first um, the, the problem. We are injecting interleukin-22 systemically, and maybe there is not enough interleukin-22 that reaches the amniotic cavity. Um, and actually, we didn't report this, uh, those experiments here, but we actually increased the concentration of interleukin-22 pretty high levels, and never it, it didn't cause uh, preterm birth. So the, the follow-up question was, well, maybe it's not the concentration of interleukin-22 in, in the system, it's most that they, uh, it somehow crosses the amniotic cavity, and once it's in the amniotic cavity, can cause damage. And that's the reason why we went to do this ultrasound uh, experiments, which are quite complicated yes. to do, because as I do imagine that the size of the fetus is um, the tip of a finger. So it's really, really difficult. Um, but because we have some exper um, experimental um, uh, people who do ultrasound guided intramniotic injection, we were able to do that. Um, and, and I think that speaks of the role of the intramniotic space and that there are some cytokines, including microbes that they are in the amniotic cavity that only cause disease when they are in the amniotic cavity. And if, so this is, um, I'm not sure if I can take a little bit of time to explain that also in, in right now in this pandemic, in, in, you know, everybody's wondering about whether COVID and SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that caused COVID, can invade, can, can cross and can cause disease and so on. And so one, one thing that you can think of, not everything that is in the mother can cross to the fetus. The, the placenta is a very, very good immunological barrier. It's pretty good at uh, doing uh, its job. It must be a woman. That's why I call it the placenta hair her job is to protect us against everything. So actually, one thing that you can think of is if it's in, inside of the placenta, or if it crosses the placenta, is because it uh, the placenta could not protect the mother and therefore is going to cause damage. So the concentrations of cytokines or even microbes that we inject into the amniotic cavity are very, very low and they can cause disease. But this is because very few of those microbes or so those molecules can cross into the intramniotic space. And speaking specifically of COVID, we also had generated evidence showing that SARS-CoV-2 doesn't cross the placenta and it gets, uh, so mothers with COVID not always will transmit uh, the virus to their babies, yet that doesn't mean that they don't, they don't have deleterious effects, but we can talk about that in a different, in a different episode. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, so, yeah, Jadine, I, I think I you something. have a question. Yeah, yeah, I have something. You just talked about COVID and pregnancy. Is there any relation between more preterm births if people, are, if, if mothers are suffering from COVID? Yes, there is already evidence that women, uh, pregnant women, are more susceptible to pregnancy complications when they had COVID. Okay. Uh, they had more preeclampsia, 
um, because preeclampsia has been associated with a systemic inflammatory response. And actually, there are some studies um, suggesting that COVID can cause preeclampsia. Preeclampsia can lead to preterm delivery. Um, so the, the, and also there are other reports showing that pregnant women with COVID, and we are talking about severe COVID, um, they can have stillbirths and, and so on. So there is an association between being pregnant, having COVID, and having adverse perinatal outcomes. However, what we had shown is that pregnant women in a cohort that is here in based in Michigan, and most of them are asymptomatic women with COVID. So they do have COVID, but they are not hospitalized, um, they uh, actually have a systemic inflammatory response. And we had shown that the virus is not found in the placenta. So the placenta does a very good job at protecting the, the pregnant woman. But that part of that cytokines that they are in the maternal blood, they some, somehow they can cross that maternal interface as we are showing for interleukin-22. In this case of COVID, it's interleukin-8 because we find that the core blood, we analyze the core blood of these neonates born to women with COVID, and we found that interleukin-8 is increased in the core blood of these um, neonates. So suggesting that they, there are deleterious effects of COVID, of COVID during pregnancy, even in those women who are asymptomatic. However, because we we couldn't follow up those uh, fit those neonates, we don't know at this point uh, if, if that high interleukin eight in the intramuric space will have some type of deleterious effects. However, that calls for more studies investigating what happens to those infants or even those teenagers or adults born to women with COVID. Um, even though there was no placental infection. I always think it's such a dilemma for the immune system when there is infection during pregnancy, because on one hand, it has to guard the fetus not to reject it, because that requires immune suppression in a way, but at the same time, it also wants to fight the infection. So it's such a balancing act, even more than in, in normal times. Exactly. And that is what I was saying earlier. The, during pregnancy, you have this conundrum of, do I protect the mother? Do I protect the fetus? So they have two patients at once, and that becomes very complicated. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for, for this great discussion. So uh, with this data, uh, we can conclude that elevated concentration of IL-22 in the abnormal cavity induced neonatal death in mice and involved impaired maturation and dysregulation of, inflammatory, of, of inflammation in the neonatal lungs. Um, so, so far, we know that IL-22 can be produced from T cells and that this cytokine can reach the fetal tissue. However, this is not the only way we could increase the concentration of these cytokines. The authors look at the innate response against microbes invading amniotic cavity, particularly uroplasma parvum infection. This microorganism is commonly found in women with microbial intramniotic inflammation and is related with preterm birth. And before I go through the findings, Nardi, can you tell us something more about this pathogen? How common is it for women to get it? And what is the mode of transmission? Yes, um, so this microbe is present in the vagina and the normal, during normal uh, pregnancies, is present in the vagina of pregnant women. It's part of the flora of the normal uh, vagina. However, yeah, remember that the flora in normal pregnancies like is the most my, abundant microorganisms are lactobacilli. So lactobacilli are, are huge. Um, 
you know, even in, indeed, if you do sequencing of the vagina, most of them will be like different types of lactobacilli. So micro, uroplasma parvum or uroplasma in general, they are very little. They are, they are a micro that they are not even seen there. Um, however, there is some, some, some disruptions that will lead to a um, less type of lactobacilli. So the good, the good bacteria will be less. So in those cases, we propose that the that bad micro will gain access into the uterus and then will get access into the amniotic cavity. So the mechanisms whereby uroplasma gains access into the amniotic cavity are not understood. And this is something that we're currently still investigating. Okay, thank you. So uh, so the author uh, did infection, uh, did an um, uh, uh, experimental approach using this uh, uroplasma problem. So, uh, as expected, after infection with this pathogen, IL-22 uh, uh, was increased in the amniotic fluid, and its expression positively correlated with the expression of other cytokines, such as IL-6, IL-21, and IL-17 alpha. Interestingly, the main source of IL-22 were monocytes, macrophages, and neutrophils, both in infected mice as well as in amniotic fluid samples from women, with intramniotic infection associated with genital mycoplasma. The IL-22 directly target an inflammatory program in different tissues, including placenta, lung, and fetal intestine. Taken together, this data provide evidence for IL-22 in the host response to uroplasma parvum infection, preceding to preterm birth in both mice and humans. Finally, uh, the last questions the author had during this paper was, how relevant is IL-22 during uroplasma parvum induced preterm death. To answer this, the authors took out IL-22 from the equation. How is this possible? Well, using an IL-22 knockout animal. The authors did intrapneotic injection of uroplasma parvob in wild type or IL-22 deficient pregnant dams. In the absence of IL-22, the neonates were protected against preterm birth and neonate mortality, even in the presence of the pathogen. In conclusion, Uroplasma parvum activates innate immune responses, the production of IL-22 in the amniotic cavity, which leads to the preterm birth and negative outcomes. So this is, has been a really, really fun discussion. And my question uh, for, for this part of, 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 the, of the paper would be the time, with, the time window required for uh, IL-22 to be detrimental. So in the context, um... You mean in the con in the absence of infection? Yes. So even in, in the model of infection or uh, in your previous report, you, you put IL-22 in the 16.5 day. Mm -hmm. And you, you did the, at that time point, you also did the infection. Mm -hmm. So what happened if you give uh, IL-22 earlier? Yes, yes. Um, then, so that's... Uh, and, an important question because I, so the process of preterm labor, so if we put a bacteria or interleukin-22 in the amniotic cavity, um, you know, the, the, the body, the, the, the organs, the intrauterine organs also have to be ready to, for the process of labor. So if you 
put an uh, inflammatory stimuli. We didn't do it for interleukin-22 because we were focusing on late pregnancy, on preterm labor specifically, but we had actually injected LPS, which is the favorite inflammatory stimuli of people, right? So we did that earlier in gestation. And what happens is in earlier in gestation, um, 10 days post-coitum or even earlier, you are dealing with a different type of immunology. So what happens is, it, and the organs are not ready for contracting, the uterus is not ready for contracting and, or the cervix of opening. So there is not that cascade of parturition ready to, to, the, to for the delivery. So what happens is there is inflammation and there is something that we call fetal resorption. So the fetuses are suffering those uh, causes of inflammation or those adverse effects of inflammation, but because the, bo the, the, the body is not ready to deliver the, 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 the fetus, then they stay and they get resolved. Um, in pregnant women, see, this is in mice, obviously, in pregnant women, what will happen is that um, th that will depend on what is the, 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 the inflammatory stimulus. But if early in, earlier in pregnancy, um, there is some type of disruption or inflammation or so on, that will, that will lead to um, fetal death or um, other type of complications such as growth restriction or so on that you know they they are they are itself syndromes and they are more complex but not everything uh, it would be easier to think if we injected earlier they will deliver earlier but actually not actually we we injected in this time window because we know that the organs are prepared in order to start parturition and then the animal can um lead to a uh, orchestrate this cascade of parturition and lead to a preterm delivery Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Jatin, I think we, with this, we could move on to the discussion. Yeah. First, I would just like to highlight how big deal it is that we have this model of urea plasma parvum infection that normally causes preterm birth. But when you knock out IL-22, it does not. That, that shows a very clear-cut connection between this one cytokine and preterm birth. I just thought I, it's usually not that clear-cut, right? You usually have yes. these... 500 factors affecting something. <laughs> and yes, actually, we were actually very surprised because if you if you see the, the plot and the last figure where we are having this interleukin-22 knockouts, we were expecting that their absence of one single cytokine will not make the, dif the huge difference. Maybe we will have a reduction in preterm birth, but not zero percent of preterm birth. And actually, one of the reasons why we utilize uraplasma is, one, is a clinically relevant model. Second, it doesn't cause very high rates of preterm birth. So in that way, if you want to dampen an effect, then you will not be leading with 100%. You will be leading with 60 or 50%. So it will be easier to deal with. So I think that's something to consider. But I think that this speaks of interleukin-22 like being a more important cytokine than what we originally thought. Yeah, because I my whole information about IL-22, all that I knew about was that it's important in intestinal health. I know if you knock it out in the complete knockout of IL-22 causes intestinal inflammation in mice, but I had no idea this would be something involved in pregnancy as well. This is very interesting. Okay, so if we can dive into the discussion we have seen some nice mechanistic work in this paper. Well, my question is, how similar is the mouse and human pregnancy? And what are some aspects where mice become a bad model for studying human pregnancy-related complications? 
Yeah. So I think that um, whatever the model that you choose, you have to know the limitations of the model. So pregnant pregnancy is uh, very different between um, mice and humans. Um, the type of placentation is different. In mice, is depending on the withdrawal of progesterone action, and uh, in, in humans doesn't. Um, that's actually one of the reasons why we are recently interested in developing uh, pregnant and relevant models in the guinea pig, which is more similar to um, humans in the in, in pregnancy at least. Um, so the the, uh, the mice are not uh, great models for pregnancy because of the the what I mentioned. However, they are cheap animal models compared to monkeys or guinea pigs. Um, they are, uh, their gestation is only 20 days um, of, so then you can really be, do an experiment rather than waiting months and months. Um, so they have their advantages and most of the immunology is done in mice. So we have a lot of immunological tools to test such as an, getting a knockout um, you know, uh, getting an antibody specific for that specific cytokine. So it has its advantages, but its disadvantages. In order to start to understand pregnancy, and this is one thing that we try to do, is always to combine the human knowledge and ask specific questions into a mouse rather than start with mice and then go to humans. So we start with the human disease. The human disease is pretend label or preeclampsia, whatever is the disease that we are focusing on. We see the effects in humans, and then we go and we explore the questions in the animal model. That's interesting. I've also been thinking, like, would you be able, like, I know a lot of IL-22 signals through the JAK-STAT pathway, right? So, mm -hmm. and a lot of people who are suffering from certain inflammatory diseases, autoimmune diseases, they are on jackanips. Mm -hmm. So if we took all these mothers who were on jackanips, and if we could see if whether they have more or less incidence of preterm birth, mm -hmm. that could be an idea, right? Or has it already been done? There are some studies showing that... Um, autoimmune diseases or women with treatment with autoimmune diseases. And again, because autoimmune diseases are so diverse and depend on different, there are some actually autoimmune diseases that get better with pregnancy, some of them that get worse with pregnancy. So that tells you the complexity of also the autoimmune diseases. But I think that in this specifically speaking, we try to avoid including in our studies, any woman who has an autoimmune disease or has any type of treatment, because that will that will definitely have an impact in our results. Oh, yeah, right. That's a lot of confounding variables yeah. to deal with. Okay. I also wanted to talk about this other study uh, where they showed that they subsetted patients based on successful birth or an unexplained recurrent abortion called URA. And they found that in successful birth, there were T cells that were producing IL-22 and IL-4, but in unexplained recurrent abortion patients, they were only producing IL-22 and no IL-4. So mm -hmm. does this tell us something about the context in which IL-22 is being seen here? Like if another cytokine is being co-expressed with it, its effects are changed or negated? Yeah, and I think that explains a lot of um, of the different results that people pro have generated of interleukin-22 being the good guy or the bad guy of pregnancy. Because it's not just interleukin-22. 
is interleukin 22 co-expressed with other and interleukin 22 expressed by different multiple cell types, right? It's not just expressed by T cells. And if it's expressed by T cells, is it a T cell that is exhausted? Is it a T cell that is activated? You know, that is um, also something to evaluate. And that's the reason why we, when we found that T cells were producing interleukin 22 at the maternal fetal interface, um, of pregnant women, we wanted to investigate what other cytokines are they expressing or what other, um, you know, neighboring cytokines are around in order to kind of decipher, is it a TH22 type of response or is just interleukin-22 is part of the inflammatory response um, of a T-cell activation? And this is one, I, I've been thinking that your study, how can it help us diagnose or prevent preterm births? Is could is this a normal thing to look at IL twenty two in the intraamniotic fluid right now? No, actually, this is something that was generated because of the first author, uh, Major Groshader. He's uh, um, now in medical school, um, but his curiosity: what is interleukin twenty two doing? And looking at the at the cytokines that we had evaluated in the amniotic cavity, but only for research. We don't do this in the clinical setting. Um, our results, because we have proposing that there are two different roles for interleukin-22, one as part of the host response. So we don't want to touch interleukin-22 there. We just want to keep it because it's good. It's good for the immune system of the mother in order to fight off the infection. But in the cases of interleukin-22 crossing into the maternal fetal interface, crossing, crossing into the amniotic cavity and reaching the fetus and causing damage, um, I think that that tells us that we can start thinking on how can we prevent that damage? And interleukin-22 is a pretty smart cytokine because it has a binding protein that is uh, inhibiting the interleukin-22. So it's, it, it works as a preventative uh, measure for interleukin-22. So one of the experiments that we didn't include in this, um, this paper because the, it was very complicated to do, and at the end we we actually couldn't do it. <laughs> is we had we wanted to inject interleukin twenty two, cause cause the intramniotic inflammatory response, and then treat um, these animals with the um, um, with the receptor with the natural receptor that is the binding protein. Unfortunately, the binding protein needs to be given locally rather than systemically, because it is given systemically, so somehow we could not find that it reaches the amniotic cavity. The problem that we have in, in, with this experiment is that the once you inject the amniotic cavity of a mouse, you don't want to inject it again, otherwise you will be causing damage and you will cause uh, some type of preterm birth due to the injection rather than to the to the, the molecule that you are injecting. So right now we don't have the system in which we can inject the inflammatory stimulus, induce the inflammatory uh, milieu in the amniotic cavity and then treat it intramniotically. Okay. But right now when women get pregnant and they do go through a, some kind of diagnosis or like regularly, I think their amniotic fluid is taken for diagnosis, right? Yes, and this is something that we here at the Prenatology Research Branch work very closely with maternal fetal medicine specialists who are those physicians who, who do the amniocentesis. Um, but this is, a, unfortunately, it's a procedure that is less and less common every day. Um, the only way to find out whether a woman has infection or inflammation in the amniotic cavity is by collecting the amniotic cavity, the amniotic fluid. So, the patient has to agree 
to get to undergo an amniocentesis in order for us to find out. Um, however, it's a procedure that is completely elective. So if most of the patients say no, we will not find out. And what we are doing uh, as you know, is treating something that we don't know what is happening. Unfortunately, that is that is where we are at this point. <laughs> Yeah, that could be that could be like a part of a diagnosis. It, maybe it's not hundred percent predictive, but it can predict partially whether or not you will have a preterm birth or something. Yeah. But yeah, I, I can see the study moving us forward to that point where we would be predicting. We will be able to predict what causes it in humans, right? Yeah, one of the things that we are doing here, uh, one of the projects that we are mainly focusing also, we are collaborating with um, bio, um, bioinformatics and also. Um, biomarkers teams. Um, and what we are doing is trying to investigate whether by knowing more information about the maternal fetal interface, and of course the, the, the immunology of the maternal fetal interface may give us a readout of what is going on locally and try to intercept these findings into the maternal circulation. So one thing that we can do, and we are exploring this by doing single cell transcriptomics is, what is the signature of these T cells that they are associated with activation in women who deliver preterm, and then look at that signature in the maternal blood transcriptome, so in the genes of the mother, in order to see whether we, whether we can prevent those women delivering preterm, not just to wait for those for those symptoms of preterm labor, just even before the symptoms of preterm labor, and this is something that. Um, we hope that they, by working together, systems biology uh, people with immunologists and uh, clinicians, we can achieve. This is actually a, one of the examples of doing team science here at the perinatology research branch, having people with multiple expertises uh, in order to try to find biomarkers that had more biological meaning, in this case, immunological meaning, that can predict a disease in pregnant women. Oh, that, wait, that is very interesting. What you're saying is taking blood samples, correlating them with features in the around the decidual placenta, mm -hmm. and then the, making like a correlation and using that to predict from the blood samples instead of invading the amniotic fluid mm -hmm. to predict whether or not there's going to be a preterm birth. I, th I think that's a very nice idea. Yes, and we have reported a few of those um, markers that we have found, and obviously there are larger studies that they are required in order to validate those markers. But um, part of the, that idea um, was already published, and we had, and and my contribution is we we had to look at T cells, we had to look at this T cell activation and see whether they are in the maternal circulation, and actually. We we reported in in 2019, I believe, that there are there is a signature that they, there are we we have two groups of women when when they had preterm delivery preterm labor, some of them deliver at term and some of them deliver preterm, as I mentioned earlier. Not all of them deliver preterm, and those ones who have preterm labor and deliver preterm have a more activated signature of T cells in their circulation compared to those who deliver at term. So. The, it was a very small study, but I think it gave us insight into knowing more about the maternal fetal interface can provide insights in pro potential biomarkers for disease in the maternal circulation. Okay. So now I would like to talk a little bit about oxytocin because that's seen as a driver of labor process. 
So do you think there's any interaction between IL-22 and oxytocin signaling? Um, we didn't evaluate that, um, but also think of the process of labor is controlled by multiple um, hormones and multiple mediators. And oxytocin is very late in the game because oxytocin is produced as pulses at the end of the process of labor. And actually the process of labor has three different phases. The, the first phase that is the where the uterus is not contracting is quiescent, we call it quiescent. The second is the Latin phase of labor. And the, 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 the mediators that can cause, that they can shift from no contractile to a contractile myometrion is prostaglandins actually. So prostaglandins initiate that process of labor and then oxytocin comes to start a, a, amplifying that effect of contraction. Um, so interleukin-22, we believe is before that cascade of labor. So we are not, uh, to answer directly to your question, we don't have evidence whether there is interaction between those two, but we think that this is actually triggering the, the release of maybe prostaglandins and prostaglandins at, um, um, with oxytocin. But, um, they may not be temporarily associated. Okay. And with that, I'll be just finishing with my last question. So this is something that has nothing to do with this paper, <laughs> <laughs> but it has a lot to do with pregnancy. And it's just something I've been wondering about. Also has nothing to do with immunology. And mm. since you're the only person who I know who is an expert in pregnancy, so maybe you will have an answer. Um, this could be very stupid. So please don't judge me. Do you know why certain mammals give birth in litters and certain mammals like humans have birth in one or two offsprings? Well, it's the type of placentation. Okay. Um, the type of gestation and type of placentation. So the type of placentation that humans have, uh, and it's in, it allows for the, 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 the hosting during gestation of one or maximum two. In some occasions, three or four, you know, but that's not very normal. Um, but most of them are having their own amniotic sac, their own placenta. Some of them can share that. So they are the, the twins or monotwins, depending. But in, in some pregnancies, when there are multiple uh, um, sacs, then it gives more, like mice, they gives more room for uh, multiple pregnancies because they have different type of placentation. They, have had, they can have multiple placentas at the same time. Um, and women usually have one or maximum two. It's depending on the type of um, um, the type of um, placentation that is derived from the moment of a conception. So how many? A, you remember that for women, for humans, we have one embryo and one ovum. And for other uh, mammals, it's different. Okay. Sometimes I think from an evolutionary perspective, doesn't it make sense to have more offsprings like from in one go? <laughs> like just from, <laughs> from the evolutionary perspective. For society, it would be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe for evolutionary perspective, um, we think the opposite. It would then make more sense to have only one and to make it better than to okay. have more. Right? But that's a societal part. That's the way you <laughs> send, it, send that offspring for education and make it a better person. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, thanks a lot, Nardi, for that answering that question. You have no idea how long I've been stomaching it. 
<laughs> and it may be not the right answer. I just, it's what I think. <laughs> but oh, I, 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 it definitely, I, um, definitely had to do with placentation. And some, if you had some time to read, I think that um, it's a lot, It's you, you will find very interesting to, to read about um, the placentation in kangaroos, you know, it, it, it's so, it's like, 20 days and they are really never mature and you know it's it's fascinating so again they 20 have, days that's all yeah they yeah much bigger yeah, but than they are, humans, right? they, the most of them that's the reason why they have that bath you know mm -hmm. because they are most of them they are mm -hmm. maintaining the 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 baby is actually not a fetus anymore it's it's uh to until it's mature and ready to come out um so it's pretty cool the type of presentation that um in this type of mammals have it's very unique and I think that allow us to um understand a little bit better what happens in humans. One thing that is common though, um regardless of the mod the question that you asked me earlier about the type of the limitations between different mammals like mice and humans, um, and also by collaborating with evolutionary biologists, we know that the inflammation either in early pregnancy and in late pregnancy, like in parturition, are some, there are characteristics that, characteristics that are shared uh, between mammals. So even though we have limitations in the animal model and we know that they are different, they have different type of presentation and so on, we still have some processes that they are conserved. Uh, more importantly, in from the immunological perspective, inflammation or immunology is pretty similar in the time of, at time of parturition. Okay. And with that, we can, we come to the end of our discussion. Let me summarize what we have talked about today. The key conclusions from the study are that in women with preterm labor and in preterm births, there are IL-22 positive ROR gamma T positive T cells, uh, uh, T cells that are enraged at the fetal maternal interface or the decidua. In mice, T cell activation that leading to preterm birth is preceded by an increase in IL-22 expression in the mother and an increase in the IL-22 receptor expression in the gestational tissues. The maternal IL-22 can cross over to the fetal side. The expression of IL-22 is higher when there is sterile or microbe-induced intra-amniotic inflammation. Then, Intra-amniotic injection of IL-22 in mice shortens gestational period and leads to neonatal death in mice. Therefore, this cytokine has a dual-edged role. It is being induced as a part of the host defense, but it ends up harming the fetus. In the end, the authors show that preterm birth can be induced in mice with ureoplasma parvus infection, but not when the mice are IL-22 deficient which shows a clear linkage between IL-22 and infection-related preterm births in mice. And with that, I think we have come to the end of the episode. Eugenio, would you like to add anything before we wrap up the discussion? No, I guess this has been really a fantastic discussion with a lot of data, a lot of new things I learned. And I'm really happy to have uh, Nardi here with us. It was really an honor to have her here. Same for me. I, I feel I've learned so much that I would never learn all of this if I was just reading a paper. It's exactly. always a it's it's like a different experience talking to the the authors who made the paper and the science behind it. 
because there is a lot of things that don't get conveyed into the paper. The paper has to be very succinct to the point, but all of this information that goes from the sides, they're very interesting. So I think this would be a good time to end our discussion. Thanks a lot, Eugenio, for joining me. Uh, so, and thanks a lot, Nardi, for being with us and telling us all the cool science behind pregnancy and immunology, specifically with IL-22. For our audience, if you are interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, online journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, uh, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.